Welcome to the Montgomery Community Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to grow deeper in your faith. If you'd like to learn more about MCC, you can visit our website at mcc.church. Good morning. Well, how many of you woke up this morning and there was one thing on your mind? And I'm not talking about the Bengals, because maybe that's today, but how about most mornings? For me, it's the sound, the smell, the feel of a warm cup in my hands, and that glorious first sip, my cup of coffee in the morning. Maybe you're not a coffee drinker, but for me, when I wake up in the morning, I crave that cup of coffee. That first sip awakens my senses, clears the fog, and gets me ready for the day. What do you crave or desire? If we took a moment to stop and think, I bet we could list a lot of things because we were created to desire and that's what we're gonna dive into today. We'll go through two passages in 1 John 2 that may seem a little unrelated, but they both come back to this idea of desire. But before we jump in, we're about halfway through our series on 1 John, so I figured this is a good time to pause and review. So this is where you get to interact with me a little bit. Who wrote the book of 1 John? John. (laughs) Well, the Holy Spirit inspired John written. There we go. Um, So John, the disciple Jesus loved, the author of the Gospel of John, is believed to be the author. This one's a little tougher. Who was his audience? It was not a specific church, right? Some of the letters like Colossians are, are to a specific church, but this was just passed around to some of the Gentile churches. And then what was his purpose for writing? We have talked about this some. What was his purpose? Ooh, we're not all jumping at once. Well, he had a few purposes. One, that we would know that we know that we know that we're saved, right? Um, Or to counter false teaching that was rampant at the time uh, so that we would stay away from sin, So as we remember, he had his original audience that he was writing to, but because God is the ultimate author behind it, right, it is still for us today. And I believe that God intends 1 John for us today in the midst of a progressive Christianity culture to help us grow our roots deeper so that we won't be fooled or shaken. And remember, so far we've been talking about a deep joy, a deeper walk with Christ, a deep clean or addressing that sin problem, and today we talk about deep desire. Remember in chapter one, John jumps right in without your typical letter greeting. But in chapter two, he finally gives us some of the reasons that he's writing. He starts chapter two with, dear children, I write this to you so that you would not sin. Then in typical John fashion, he wanders away for a little bit and then comes on back a little later where we're starting today in verse 12. And he comes with six reasons for why he's writing. Through these reasons, we'll see that John wants us to desire to know God more, no matter where we are on our walk. So let's look. 1 John 2, 12 through 14. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. 
I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. John lists many reasons for writing, and as he does so, he addresses three different groups of people, two times each. He addresses the children, the fathers, and the young men. While we're, we're a little unsure what he meant by this, most scholars will agree that he's addressing stages of spiritual maturity. So children are brand new believers, young men have progressed a bit in their walk, and then the fathers are the spiritually mature who've either been walking with God for a long time or with great closeness. So with that in mind, let's look through this again. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on the account of his name. Forgiveness is the initial step of faith. John is writing to them because they have been saved. They're now children of God, and John has some information he wants them to know as they start their faith journey. Next, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Remember, the address to fathers likely represents believers who've walked with Christ for some time, continually deepening their relationship. They've known Jesus. They know him personally, not just academically. Even though they're seasoned in their walk, John finds it important to write to them, to encourage them to keep growing deeper with Christ. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. These young men are in between the children and the fathers of faith. They're on the journey, and they're in the heat of the spiritual battle. They're actively in the fight to overcome sin and Satan. Now John cycles back, and he addresses each group again. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. Wait, if you were listening, he just said that the fathers were the ones who knew God, but now he says that to the children, but the language is a little different. To the fathers, he says, you've known him who is from the beginning, and he's kind of hitting on the eternal nature of God. Long before they knew him, even though they're seasoned believers, God was. But with the children, it's hitting on him as a heavenly father who loves them. Remember, their sins have just been forgiven. They've just been adopted as sons and daughters. And so they're getting to know him. They've been forgiven. Now they get to know their daddy, their father. Okay, now he repeats the same message to the fathers. He says, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. We get it. Even those of us who've been walking with Christ for some time need to listen up. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. They get their strength from the word of God. This is how we grow into spiritual maturity. The majority of us in this room and watching online are in this stage of our faith. We're somewhere in the young men and young women category. If you're brand new to the faith, you're one of the children, that's great. Listen into this next section for the young men and women because this is where you're going as you grow in your faith. And if you consider yourself one of the fathers that, hey, I've known and walked with God for some time or with great dip- deepness, still listen in because this is to the majority of people you are leading. This is important here. So to those of us in the middle of our walk with the Lord, progressing from being forgiven and adopted as sons and daughters on our journey towards walking with God for many, many years, hear this. John says, you are strong. You are 
You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. You are strong. He says the word of God lives in you. Hallelujah. We can hide God's word in our hearts, planting his seeds and his teachings right here. Do you allow his word to live in you? Do you fill your mind with his truth? And then he says, you have overcome the evil one. I love it. I know we're in the midst of this spiritual battle every day. And if you want to read more about the battle waging around us, check out Ephesians 6. But in spite of the fact that we're in the heat of battle, we already have the victory. We've overcome the evil one. Remember from Rooted, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. God has already won. But we are in a battle. When Paul tells us to suit up for this battle in Ephesians 6, all the armor is defensive except one thing. There's only one offensive weapon. Ephesians 6, 17, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God is our weapon to overcome the evil one. The word of God that John just said lives in us. How did Jesus overcome the evil one? When tempted in the wilderness, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus overcame Satan with God's word, and so can we. John wrote to early believers and us today so that we wouldn't sin. One of the biggest ways to keep us from sin is God's word. I have this phrase written in the front of my Bible. It says, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. How true that is. So wherever you are on your spiritual journey, a child, a young man or woman, a seasoned one who's walked with God for a long time, this message is for us. Wherever you are on your journey, you can keep moving forward. God wants to draw you deeper into relationship with him. We must desire to know God more. Your heavenly father wants to meet every yearning and desire you have. He knows it's only he who truly satisfies, so he wants to draw you deeper. Will you go there? Wherever you are on your faith journey, will you commit to getting to know him more? What if all our desire was for him, to immerse ourselves in his word, to know him and be known by him, to know him and help others know him? That's what it's all about. And John knows this. That's why he continues in verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. This is a stern warning. John is using the imperative mood here to convey a command, something that he only does 15 times in the whole book of 1 John, as compared to 35 times in the book of James. So John means business. He's laying in here, so let's focus in. When John tells us not to love the world, the Greek word he uses here for world is cosmos, and it can mean two things. It can mean the earthly world and all that's on it, the creation, or the sinful world, 
Well, we know he can't mean the world God created and us as people because God called these good at creation. So John must be referring to the sinful world, earthly values, beliefs, behaviors, the fallen temporal world. So let's break this chunk apart. Verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Ouch, this is severe. John is clearly saying here, we cannot love both God and the world. This sounds familiar to me. Does anyone remember these excerpts from Matthew 6, where Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moss and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moss and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This teaching from Christ probably resonated in John's mind, and so he passes on a similar warning to us. We can't serve two masters. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you love the world, you're not filled with the love of the Father. Trying to love God and the things of this world at the same time is like trying to keep one foot on a dock and one foot in a boat. Any of you who've been boating know that that's not gonna last very long. This summer I got to go kayaking, had a wonderful afternoon out on the lake, and I'm getting ready to come back in and I pull up to the dock and I realize this dock is a lot higher than I remember it being when I got in. I think, how exactly am I gonna get up on this? And so I use all my Pilates balance and coordination. I, I brace myself, I start to raise up, and I grab for the dock. And as I do so, my feet and the kayak go out from under me. So I cling to that dock as hard as I can and pull myself on up. But it quickly became clear to me, I was not gonna last long with part on the dock and part in the boat. This passage in Matthew gives us a few hints into why John gives the command not to love the world. Jesus says the treasures of this earth won't last, but what we treasure, that's where our heart and our devotion will be. It can't be split, just like we can't have one foot on the dock and one foot in the boat, or for me, my arms on the dock and my feet in the boat. Sooner or later, the desires of this world will pull us away from the Father, just as the currents pull the boat away from the dock. Jesus tells us to seek God and his kingdom first. The same idea is found in 1 John 2, 17, our memory verse for this week, which says, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. We are to desire what will last and truly satisfy, not what will perish. Why? Let's look back at verse 16. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life come not from the Father, but from the world. These three earthly desires here are to do, to have, and to be. The first is the lust of the flesh. The Greek word for lust here is a compound word that takes the normal word for desire and puts a prefix on it to intensify it. It literally means hyper-desire. Lust can begin with a healthy desire, but take it to an unhealthy extreme. There's nothing wrong with desire. God wants us to desire to eat, to work, to play, to create, to achieve, to love. God made great things in this world for us to enjoy and delight in because he loves us. 
But the world perverts these desires. They can become a hyper desire, taken to the extreme and twisting God's design. There's nothing wrong with food until we eat too much of it. There's nothing wrong with work until it consumes us. Nothing wrong with love for God or people, but sometimes we look at the wrong place for love. There's nothing wrong with success until it leads to pride. Nothing wrong with sports until there's no more time for God. The lust of the flesh is a hyper desire to do or experience. The lust of the eyes is a hyper desire to have. We see something, we want it. We're drawn to material earthly possessions. And there's nothing wrong with possessions if we have the means for them, but wanting more can often lead to debt or discontentment or greed rather than generosity. We must remember whose money it is. Nothing belongs to us, it's God's. He has entrusted these resources to us and what will we do with them as his stewards? The final desire listed in this verse is the pride of life. This is the pursuit of achievement, success, or recognition. Again, the world perverts a healthy desire. God wants us to, to desire to do well for his glory. It's okay to feel a sense of accomplishment or even to feel good about yourself for something you've done. But when we make praise from others an idol, we've perverted the desire to achieve. Galatians 1.10 says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. The problem with pleasures, possessions, and pride isn't that they're wrong in and of themselves, but that they can never be enough. We don't need pleasure, we need joy. We don't need possessions, we need contentment. We don't need achievement. We need significance. All the world has to offer can never fill our deepest desires. Only God can. Our souls long for significance, love, joy, satisfaction, fulfillment that can only be found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. God created us with a spiritual hunger that only he can satisfy, a deep desire that only he can fill. St. Augustine said it so well when he said, the human heart was made for God and our hearts are restless till we find rest in him. The greatest showman also said it well, everything we long for in this world can never be enough. Take a look. All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be.
Even Tom Brady, one of the most successful football players to ever play the game said, why do I have three, now seven, Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I think it's gotta be more than this. That promotion, that title, that award, that achievement, the affair, the house, the car, the grade, the number of likes, the retirement fund, the popularity and recognition, it will never be enough. Everything this world has to offer can never be enough, so we need to stop looking here for fulfillment. The world promises a lot of things, empty promises, but promises nonetheless, and we get caught up in them. We fall prey to Satan's tricks and deception that this world is all there is. Forgetting this life is more like the previews, and eternity with Christ is the feature film. All that we experience right now is not even the dress rehearsal. Eternity is the big show. God gives us glimpses of just how amazing he is, how wonderful an eternity with him might be, but these are just glimpses. We get caught up in the good things of this world, forgetting God has something far greater than we could ever imagine in store for us when Christ returns. Have you heard of the board game Life? Imagine for a moment you're handed that game and told to play it, but while you play, don't forget about your real life. However, as you're playing, you start to get completely caught up. You want the best career. You want that perfect um, you know, family with 2.5 kids, the house with the white picket fence. Oh, and don't forget money. We gotta keep collecting money so that we can win the game. How silly it would be to think that that was your reality, to forget about your true life outside of the game. Yet that's what we do all day after day. We get wrapped up in this life thinking that's all there is and forgetting about eternity. James 4.14 points out just how fleeting this life is. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Picture for a moment the beach with me. Sounds much, much more enticing than what's out there today. Picture the beach, all the grains of sand on the sea. Now imagine a seagull is tasked with the chore of moving all the sand from the Atlantic Ocean over to the Pacific Ocean one grain at a time. First, we know that seagull's not even gonna last that long, right? But let's think about one grain, fly it over, fly back, one grain, fly it over. That's gonna take a whole long time, longer than we can even imagine for all that sand to be gone, right? Imagine that's eternity, and that doesn't even give us the full grasp because we know eternity will never end. But imagine that's eternity, and in comparison to that, that's your life, come and gone, just like that. Our lives are so short, eternity is so long, we must keep our perspective. We must set our minds on things above. Maybe we find it's hard to remain focused on the eternal because we can't picture what eternity will be like. The Bible gives us some insight, but I think we're often intimidated when we try to understand it. I recently read the book Imagine Heaven by John Burke. Burke spent decades interviewing more than 100 people who've been brought back from near-death experiences, often even proclaimed clinically dead only to revive minutes or hours later. Now, I know it's easy to be skeptical of this at first, but I do think God wants us to know some of what's in store for us. He wants us to know how great eternity with him will be so that we desire that more than anything this world has to offer. 
So he's given these people a tiny peek at what eternity might be like. These 100 plus people in their brief time of being declared dead before reviving share some wonderful insights that get me so excited about what's to come. Some of the things these people described are the brightest colors my eyes had ever beheld, the most delicious thing I've ever tasted. My senses were heightened, I felt deliriously happy. Part of the joy I was experiencing was not only the presence of everything wonderful, but the absence of everything terrible. An astonishing love, a love beyond my wildest imagining, a love so great you never wanna leave it. And while these descriptions aren't scripture themselves, we can hold them up against what the Bible tells us about eternity, and it seems very likely. Whatever heaven will be, it will not be boring. And however good you think God is now, you will know then that he is even better, his love even greater than you could ever imagine. So going back to verse 17, our memory verse, this time I want you to say it with me. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Do you want to live forever? Do you want a reality far better than we can ever grasp or imagine? One of Satan's greatest tricks is to get us caught up into thinking this world is all there is, this life is all we have, it's about here and now. But what is your life? It's like a mist, here today, gone tomorrow, and we have all of eternity ahead of us. We were created as eternal beings. The soul, the true part of who we are, will live forever. But will it live forever in eternal separation from your loving Father who created you? Or will you live with Him, your deepest desires, forever fulfilled? Taste better than you have ever tasted. Sights more beautiful than you can imagine. A love greater, deeper than you can ever fathom. Heaven won't be boring, my friends. So many of us, if we try to picture heaven, we think of angels everywhere singing before the throne 24-7. And while we will praise God because he's definitely worthy of it, there's far more to heaven than this. If God gave us things on this earth to enjoy, how much more will he give us to enjoy in heaven? John writes this letter so that we would know that we know that we know that we are saved, that we can spend this glorious eternity with God on a new heaven and a new earth far better than anything we could imagine. This is why he's so stern in verses 15 through 17. This is why he commands us, do not love the world. He knows the things of this world can never fulfill our deepest desires. They will never satisfy Yet we lust for pleasures, possessions, pride. I believe this is why the letter of 1 John concludes with, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And idols, anything we hold above God, anything we desire more than him. Do not desire the things of this world. Desire to know God more than anything else. And yes, you can enjoy the things he blesses you with. He wants you to enjoy them. He delights when you delight as a good, good father would. He is not a killjoy. Your heavenly father loves you. He wants what's best for you. He desires you. Will you desire him with all that you are, all that you have, and all that you strive for? Do you want life with God more than anything this world has to offer? Desire what will last, not what will perish. 
Let Jesus satisfy you. Let's pray. Oh God, you are good. You are that loving Father who just wants to take us deeper. You wanna know us more. You rejoice when we rejoice. You delight when we delight, but you want us to seek what will truly satisfy. Forgive us for trying to fill ourselves with all these empty things, all the false promises of the world, all it has to offer. Let us remember our life is but a mist. We have eternity with you ahead. And God, we want to spend it with you. We want to know you more. We wanna help others know you. We wanna desire you with all that we have, all that we are. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can stay connected throughout the week by following Montgomery Community Church on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about MCC, visit our website at mcc.church.